0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, and then we do have our sermon notes available in our Google Drive folder if you would like to access those along with us. Hebrews chapter 4, just to kind of recap where we've been over the past couple of weeks, we spent a whole week just kind of introducing the book of Hebrews and talking about the really even the purpose of the book from both a theological standpoint and a practical standpoint. We've been saying all along that theologically we're supposed to see that Christ is better. Christ is better than than numerous things listed in the Old Testament, and that practically that is to encourage us to not walk away from Jesus. That because Jesus is better, we don't walk away from him for other things because he's better than those things. And so uh, we said that our study of Hebrews is going to help us see that Jesus is superior to all things found in this life, giving us great reason to hold fast to him while encouraging others to do the same when we are tempted to abandon our faith due to persecution and or temptation from this world. And so we said that there's the two key things that, that will seek to lead us away from Jesus. It's temptation to to go back to an old way of life or to go into a new way of life that this world offers, or trials, the idea that, that Christianity, our life becomes so difficult or so tough because of the things that we're going through that we're tempted to, to abandon Jesus. And so trials and temptations being the two, uh, the two enemies of the Christian here in the book of Hebrews. We said in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is better than prophets and he's better than angels because he's the climactic conclusion to God's progressive revelation about himself and his plan, giving us great cause to trust and follow him with our lives. We said in chapter 2 that we don't need to neglect or drift from his word. Rather than neglecting our salvation and drifting from the faith, we must glorify God with our lives based on his word, which is our purpose for existence by seeking the all-sufficient help of Jesus. And then in chapter 3, we talked about last week to not, the need to not harden our hearts, that we need to avoid Israel's mistake of letting our hearts grow hard to God's word, by seeking to increase our trust and obedience for him with the help of others in our life who share the same goals. And so we talked about perseverance a little bit last week, that um, we are shown to be Christians if we make it to the very end, and that our salvation is not wrapped up in our good works, so it's not saying that um, if we persevere to the end, then we will be saved. Instead, Hebrews chapter 3 presents this idea that we are saved today if we make it to the end and we use the seed analogy that if you don't know what kind of seeds you have, is it a pumpkin seed or a watermelon seed? You plant them in the ground and at the end of a few months, you will know what seeds you had, right? One will produce watermelon, the other will produce pumpkins. And so if you're trying to determine, is the seed a watermelon seed? You put it in the ground and you find out in a couple of months, right? And so you can then go back and say, it was a seed, it was a watermelon seed the day that I planted it. And I now know it to be a watermelon seed because it's produced watermelons. And so it doesn't become a watermelon seed by producing watermelons. It was always a watermelon seed because it produced watermelons. And so from a Christian standpoint, we are saved today if we persevere to the end. We don't earn our salvation or become Christians by making it to the end. We're shown to be Christians today. We show that our previous experience of coming to the gospel and accepting Christ to be true back then and today, if we make it to the very end. And so from an application standpoint last week, we said, do I show a pattern of listening and and applying the word of God as a sign of belief? Is that something that's true about you? That you're showing signs and patterns in your life of listening and applying the word of God? Secondly, do you show a pattern of seeking and responding to exhortation from others to push back against unbelief in your life? Are you putting yourself in situations where others can encourage you, others can give you advice and counsel to help you push back against unbelief in your life? And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 4 today, what we title, Belief Leads to Rest, because God's rest is certainly a theme in this chapter. Let's read it again, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our summary sentence for today for Hebrews chapter 4 We must strive for ongoing belief in the promises of God as a result of fearing the example of Israel in order to enjoy immediate aspects of God's rest now and the eternal implications of God's rest in the future. All right, so we have a responsibility to strive for ongoing belief, belief specifically in the promises of God, and we're motivated to do that as a result of fearing the example that Israel set for us in the Old Testament. And if we do these things, we will enjoy immediate aspects of God's rest now and the eternal implications of his rest in the future. For our kids, we need to learn from Israel's mistake and believe God's promises to take care of us. And that's the the two passages that we've been referencing in the Old Testament, where they fail to trust God's provision before they ever get to the promised land, right? There's a shortage of water, and so they're they're, they're confused, and they're doubting God's goodness in their life, and they don't believe that God's going to provide, and they feel hopeless and helpless, and and they doubt God right there. They grumble and complain and, and distrust him. And then they get to the promised land, right? After they've seen time and time again, God saving them and providing for them. Remember, even right after they leave Egypt and they're they're walking away from Egypt, they come to the Red Sea and they think, man, God has led us out here to die because here come the Egyptians trailing after us, right? And then God splits the Red Sea and they walk through. So time and time again, they've seen God's provision. And we're not talking about eons and eons of time here. I mean, it didn't take them that long to get to the promised land, right? We, we know they journeyed in the wilderness for 40 years, but it didn't take them 40 years to get to the promised land, right? God just keeps sending them in circles as punishment because of their lack of trust in him. Because when they get to the promised land, they refuse to go in, they refuse to enter because they doubt God's goodness and his provision for them, right? So we want to learn from that mistake. So for our kids, we wanna learn from that mistake and believe God's promises to take care of us. And what a, what a privilege and joy it is as parents to help lead our kids into that type of trust, right? So God gives circumstances and situations to us so that our kids can watch how we handle those situations so that they can learn as they grow up and get older how to trust God's promises based on how mom and dad did that, right? And so we have a great privilege to pass on to our kids a strong belief in the promises of God based on how we respond to circumstances in our life. but We have to strive for this. We have to strive for this ongoing belief in the promises of God. And we, we use the fear of, of Israel's example to keep us motivated, right? Like we don't want to be like Israel. We don't want to start off believing and then falter and, and, and wither away in our belief, right? So we want to keep believing in God, using the fear of the example of Israel to keep us motivated, so that we can enjoy aspects of the rest now. And I do think that there's aspects that we enjoy now and far more in the future. So kind of going back to what we saw in Revelation, there's some things that are happening now, right? This this, this already but not yet aspect of God's promises being fulfilled. So some aspects we enjoy in a, in, a, in, a, in a small way, in a little bit of a way, and then we're gonna experience that even greater in the future. So we'll talk about how we enjoy God's rest now and how we'll enjoy it in the future here in just a few minutes. All right, so as you're continuing to write that down, just by way of introduction, Hebrews chapter four, verse one says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That therefore is going back to the argument made there at the end of chapter three. That in light of Israel's inability to enter God's rest due to their unbelief, here's what he now has to say in chapter four. So you'll remember at the end of last week, chapter three, we saw that um, not all who left Egypt led by Moses, um, it says, and with whom he, was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So he reminds us of that example of Israel. They failed to believe, it led to disobedience, it led to them not entering into God's rest. Okay, so the therefore kind of sets the stage. Everything in chapter 3 leads to what he has to say in chapter 4. We're going to see again here that Psalm chapter 95, specifically verses 7 and 11, are quoted heavily again in this passage. He says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, in verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. Again, that passage is referenced in um, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you just went back and read Psalm 95 yourself, you would see some urgency there. Then we come to the chapter here in Hebrews, and he's already quoted it several times here in chapter 3. He comes back to it in chapter 4. So you've got a a passage that's already uh, heavy on urgency, and now it's being repeated multiple times. Really, all that means is that this is really urgent right, like you've got an urgent passage that's being repeatedly quoted, it just increases the urgency of the message there. Urgent passage, multiple times being referenced, certainly some urgency there for us to pay attention to the point that he's trying to make. There's a real urgency to the message of chapter four because there's a danger of falling away in unbelief, which leads to disobedience. There's a danger of missing the opportunity that he calls today, all right? When we think about the today, Think about how long of that time of time is stretched out with the today, right? You've got David who's writing back in Psalms 95. He's talking about today, right? Then you've got the author of Hebrews who says it's still today. There's still opportunity to enter into God's rest. And now we are reading the book of Hebrews thousands of years later, and it's still today. Okay, so the today, the aspect of entering into God's rest really extends all the way back to God finishing his creative work in Genesis, right? But at some point, today will expire, right? So at some point, the urgency will expire and the, and, the, and the need to respond to God's word will run out. But as long as it's today, there is still opportunity to respond and to believe him. God's rest has been made available since his creative acts finished. And really, it's this, this peace that comes from trusting him for his provision. Now, Israel enjoyed aspects of this in the Old Testament from a physical standpoint, right? It says in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If you go back and read the last, I think the last three chapters of Joshua, there are references to Joshua leading Israel into a state of rest, but it's a physical state of rest, right? Like they have conquered enough of the promised land for them to kind of settle in and rest from that war and that labor, but there is no spiritual rest that he is able to lead them into because they continue to distrust God and his word. They don't follow through in ways that they're supposed to. They allow the idols to continue and they give themselves over to idolatry, right? So even though Joshua leads them into some aspects of rest, he doesn't lead them into the rest that was really intended for them because the author of Hebrews tells us they didn't enjoy it like they were supposed to. They got some of it, but not all of it because they did not trust God the way that God intended for them to. All right, so what do we mean by God's rest? And how do we enter into it? There's some passages that I think that deal with this that give us some help outside of Hebrews chapter four. One of those being Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. This is Jesus talking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Romans chapter 5, thinking in terms of rest and peace. Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That that idea of access to God is reiterated here in the book of Hebrews, right? That we have access to the throne room of God because we enjoy rest or peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And then Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You continue to read down through chapter 4, and you find Paul talking about the secret to contentment in his life, right? That that he's able to be brought low, and he's able to be uh, raised high. In any and all circumstances, he has found the ability to trust God in, in all of his circumstances. So he doesn't trust God more when things are going good, and trust God less when things aren't going as good as he wants them to. He's found the way to trust God in both states. He doesn't believe God that is, he doesn't believe that God is better when things are going good and worse when things aren't going well. He believes and trusts in God's goodness in all circumstances in life. All right. So, what does it mean for us to find rest and to, to enter into God's rest? I think there's there's several, there's several different ways I think we can understand this from scripture. And I think what's intended here in chapter four is probably a combination of all three of these things. Okay? And this is where I would say. Aspects of God's rest enjoyed now, more to come in the future. All right, number one, we rest from our efforts to validate ourselves before God by our own righteousness, instead, trusting in the work of Jesus. We rest from our efforts to validate ourselves before God by our own righteousness, instead, trusting in the work of Jesus. One commentator said, The gospel is the message of Christ's accomplishments on our behalf, so that we might rest from our works. By trusting in his work. When we trust in Christ's work, we rest from trusting in our own. Okay, so there's this salvation aspect of rest, that when we come to faith in Christ, we stop trying to, to work our way to heaven. We, start try, we stop trying to earn God's favor by our efforts, and we see that all of that is accomplished through Jesus, who comes and lives that perfect life for us. Number two, so not only do we rest from our efforts to validate ourselves Uh, before God through our own works, but instead trusting in the work of Jesus. Number two, we rest from the burdens and worries of this world by learning contentment in how God chooses to fulfill his promises towards us. We rest from the burdens and worries of this world by learning contentment in how God chooses to fulfill his promises towards us. There's great rest that comes from that state. And that's what Paul describes there in Philippians 4. I was sharing with our football team a couple of weeks ago that it it, it because a bunch of them are gonna get ready to go on mission trips in January. We're doing this thing at Trinity called Go Week. And so for an entire week of school, classes are canceled and everybody has to go somewhere and do something. So it's a really cool um, initiative that we're starting this year for the high school students, right? And so I was telling these guys, I was like, man, be careful because here's what people typically do. People go to a foreign setting see how bad they have it, and come back and say, man, I'm so thankful for how good God is to me. Right? And it, and it, and, it, and, it, and I used to feel that same thing, and then I started to realize, man, what does that say about God's goodness to the people that you just left in that foreign country? Is he not good to them? Do they not have things to be thankful for as well? And, and are we in a state where we just have more to be thankful for? And what Paul describes in Philippians is that I don't care if I live in in Indonesia. I don't care if I live in Thailand, right? Like uh, one of the missionaries that my church supported growing up, that I shared with some of you at Mount Gilead way back when, when we were talking about missions, is a guy named Tommy Tillman who lives with uh, with people with leprosy, right? Like so, he lives in Thailand. He's given his life to serving lepers, right? And then you've got guys like. Dabo Sweeney, who's the head coach of Clemson University's football team, who claims to be a Christian and seems to be very solid in his faith and makes millions of dollars and has multiple houses to live in, in, right? Like, God's good to both, right? Like, he has to be good to both because he promises good for his children. Paul's saying, I don't care if I'm Tommy Tillman or Dabo Sweeney, I'm good with God's provision in both states. Most of us, spiritual maturity-wise, we would say, Even if I don't like football, I'd rather be Dabo Sweeney. Like, I'd rather make the millions. I'd rather have multiple houses. I'd rather live in the United States than live in Thailand with lepers. Paul says, just just point me in one of those directions. I don't care which one because I'm content either way with God's provision and goodness. That's the state that's being described in Philippians 4 is that we can rest from the burdens and the worries of this world by learning contentment in how God chooses to fulfill his promises towards us, right? That's where... It doesn't matter if, if God's giving you a spouse or not giving you a spouse, giving you children, not giving you children, giving you the job that you desire, not giving you the job that you desire. It doesn't matter which one of those situations you find yourself in, you can be content with God's goodness because Romans eight twenty eight applies to all of us, right? He works all things for the good of his children. He just does it differently for different people. And it's not that one's better than the other. We can rest from these things, learning contentment, how God chooses to fulfill his promises. And then thirdly, we can rest from the trials and temptations of this life when we enter into his presence for eternity with our faithful works. And this is what we saw in Revelation in our study there. Revelation chapter 14. Man, isn't it great to go back to reference Revelation? We know exactly the context of even what we're talking about, because you know, Like I said previously to our study, I had not studied the book, and so I love being able now to reference passages in Revelation and have a context of understanding for what it's really talking about there. Because in Revelation 14, 11, it talks about the, the, the judgment and the punishment that comes towards unbelievers and the worshipers of the beast. It says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name, right? So some of us enter into God's rest. Those who worship the beast, those who do not partake in God's word in faith, they don't have any rest day or night. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. That's what we're talking about in Hebrews, right? The endurance of the saints. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. We're seeing here in Hebrews 4, belief leads to obedience, right? So those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may, what, rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And we talked about how how good it is to know that our faithfulness to Jesus doesn't get forgotten, doesn't go unnoticed. Those things go with us, into the afterlife. Those things follow us into the afterlife where we then rest from all the trials and the temptations and the need to endure. We reach a state where, man, I don't have to endure anymore. Like like it's easy now. I'm going into a state of glory where trials and temptations won't exist anymore. And that's what we saw in the book of Revelation, that when Jesus comes back, he sets everything right, he removes evil from this world, ushers us into a state where there are no trials, there are no temptations, and we don't have to exhort one another to endure. We just naturally will want to do that, okay? So aspects of rest now, we rest from a salvation standpoint. We don't have to earn God's favor. We, we can be content with whatever God gives to us. We, we recognize that, man, my purpose for existence is to give him glory with whatever life he chooses to give me, knowing that, man, there's coming a day where I'll get to rest fully. Right? Not an eternal nap, but an ability to live and exist without the trials and temptations and need to endure through those things. All right, so what does that look like here in chapter four? I wanna give you three things of how we rest today and yield to that urgency of today. First of all, we rest today by being fearful of not believing his word. We rest today by being fearful of not believing his word. For our kids, we need to believe the Bible and we look to Israel for the example of what it looks like to not believe. Israel failed, number one there, Israel failed to enter God's rest, which should alarm us. Why should that alarm us? Because they heard a very similar message that we hear. It says, verse two, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They heard the same message that we hear, but they did not believe it. What's that message? The message all along through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the the gospel message, the way to salvation is to believe God and his promises. salvation doesn't change from the Old Testament to New Testament. It wasn't works based in the Old Testament, be obedient to the law and be saved, and in the New Testament, that changed. It's always been about faith in God and his promises, trusting and believing what he says. Now, what has changed is the amount of information that we have to believe and trust in, right? God has progressively revealed himself, and so he's increased the amount of information that we have to believe in, but it's always been about faith in God and his promises. And that message has been the same since the Old Testament. You go back to Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. People like to say that, man, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Exodus 34, six and seven. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty That's the same message of the New Testament, right? We even see that in Romans 3 where it says that God in his forbearance passed over the sins of the Old Testament so that he could bring his wrath upon his son Jesus in the New Testament. And then you can read Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, where it talks about the salvation of Abraham and how it works just like our salvation does in the New Testament. So Israel has heard the same message as us. We just hear more of it now. We have more to trust in. But think about Israel. They had the advantage of miracles and signs that we always don't have here in the New Testament, right? I mean, these are the people that saw the Red Sea split. These are the people that saw manna show up at their doorstep every day. These are people that saw water come out of nowhere to provide for them, and yet they said no to the promises of God. That should alarm us because it means, man, if they can see all this great stuff and not believe, man, it's possible for us to see all this stuff and hear all this stuff and have all access to all this stuff and not believe. And just think about the access that we have to God and his word that they did not have, right? Like a lot of what they are even talking about in referencing God's word is gonna be oral tradition that's passed down, things they've had to memorize because they can't just go out to their bookstore and just pick up the local, local copy of the ESV or the NIV or the NASB and choose their translation to read from. And they're having to pass this down and, and, and they rejected it, they didn't believe it. We have so much more available to us today which means to not believe it indicts us even more than them. Man, we're doing this thing at Trinity this week that we're calling discipleship day. The entire day is devoted to God and his word, right? Like we've got multiple chapel services. We're having 16 speakers that day with 16 different breakout sessions, 16 different topics that our kids can pick and choose from to listen to about God's word. I had one girl email me and she says, I can't wait for this day. She's like, me and my friend have been talking, and we wish we could go to every one of these sessions. We cannot wait for this day to happen. I know most of our kids are indifferent to it, right? They're thinking like, great, we don't have homework that night. That's something that I'm looking forward to about that day. Man, we are putting our kids at Trinity in a situation where the indictment against them is even greater because they have access far more to God's word than kids their age back in the Old Testament, right? They have more of God's revelation we want them to love it. We want them to crave it. We want them to believe it. But if they don't, man, they're, 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 there's, there's judgment that's coming, right? They're, they're, like, there's fear that comes from that, according to Hebrews chapter 4, if we fall into unbelief. Israel failed to enter God's rest. That should alarm us. It should at least cause us to pause and step back and say, am I guilty of what the Israelites were guilty of? Number two, Israel failed to believe and obey God's word, which should motivate us. It should motivate us. They did not believe the promises of God. They didn't believe He could deliver them. Didn't believe they could de- He could deliver anything better than Egypt, and so they were ready to abandon Him and go back to their old way of life, right? Like they wanted to go back to slavery. They wanted to go back to uh, the the pressures and the anxieties and the worries of Egypt, where where they were under oppression by Pharaoh. But they said, you know what? That's better because we don't believe that God has anything better than that. Their unbelief led to disobedience. Their disobedience flowed from a heart of unbelief. We need to fear a similar unbelief that would keep us from God's rest. We need to fear a similar unbelief. And that's the idea here that the author is saying, is that we have a responsibility to fear falling into the same state as the Israelites. Right, like, like, We don't have fear of death, according to Hebrews. Like, like we've been set free from that. Jesus sets us free from a fear of, 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 of death. We've been subject to lifelong slavery to that. We've been set free from that if we're believers. So what do we fear as believers? We don't fear God. We fear not being with God. We fear not believing God. We fear not entering into his rest. And if we fear God and we fear unbelief, then we won't fear anything else. We need to fear hearing the promises of God and not believing them in times of trial and temptation. We need to fear hearing the promises of God and not believing them in times of trial and temptation. Man, just think about people that you know who started well and then in times of trial or temptation, they stopped believing and they were led into disobedience. And we all have stories of that, whether it's our parents, whether it's friends, whether it's former pastors, former spiritual leaders in our life who, who were believing things and then for whatever reason stopped believing certain things and were led into massive disobedience. I have to caution myself of that constantly in my own life because I don't want to see that happen in my life like it happened in my dad's life. And there's so many similarities about me and my dad right? Like like my dad is a lot like me and I'm a lot like my dad. And we do a lot of the same things with our life. Meaning he, he was a school administrator. I'm a school administrator. He was a pastor. I'm a pastor. Like our schools are, are literally within like 15 miles of each other where we were administrators, right? Like I, at some point I want to say, and this is where the similarities stop between me and my dad. Right? And I have to be very cautious that I don't just continue down this path of being just like my dad to the point that I stop believing certain things and it leads me into sin and disobedience. That's true for all of us. We all have stories like that. And because we know got people, men and women, who we would, who we would say, man, I never expected that of them. Like We don't want to become that for somebody else. I never expected that out of somebody in this room. We don't want to fall into unbelief that leads into disobedience. So it should alarm us that Israel did. It should alarm us that people that we valued in our life fell into this state at times too. So we should fear being that person as well. A healthy, and it's a healthy fear that motivates you to take action, right? Like I'm not talking about a crippling fear where you're just worried all day long, am I gonna turn out like that? Am I gonna turn out like that? Instead, it's like a a healthy motivation similar to, let's say you were a rock climber and you, you love to climb rocks, it's a dangerous activity, right? But if you love that, or let's say you love jumping out of an airplane and parachuting, your, your fear of what could happen if you don't really check your equipment, man, it really leads you to overcheck that stuff, right? Like you wanna know for sure I'm covered, that, that I'm gonna do this, I'm going to experience this, and the equipment is going to work like it's supposed to. It's gonna keep me safe in the midst of, of, of this activity. That's how it should be for us spiritually. Like We should all anticipate we're gonna go through trials and we're gonna go through temptations. There's gonna be times where it feels hard to keep pressing on because things are tough and not desirable in our life. There's also gonna be times where, man, this other life looks better than this one. And we have to make sure that we've checked the equipment, we've checked our belief in the promises of God to know that when those times come, that when those times come, our belief will work. When things are at their hardest or at their most tempting, that our belief works. Because it's easy to believe in God here on a Sunday morning. right? Like It's easy to sit there and say, man, what Adam is saying is so true, and, and I believe that so much. And then we leave, and there's temptation that sets in, and there's trials that set in, and we don't always respond in belief in those circumstances. Easy to show belief on a Sunday morning not as easy on a Monday morning, right? So the implication from this section, do you fear not believing God in times of trial and temptation enough to better prepare for those times? Because the author says we should fear this. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Is there a healthy fear in your life of not believing God in times of trial and temptation that leads you to really check the equipment now to better prepare for those times. Because your belief's not going to be tested on a Sunday morning. It's going to be tested during the week. It's going to be tested when when you're working a job and things are are being done unethically and you have to decide, do I believe in God's provision enough that I'm willing to step away from my job and believe in God's provision if I do the right thing, right? It's, It's when all of your single friends are are falling into relationships and finding relationships and and pursuing relationships, and you're on the outside looking in saying, when is my relationship coming, right? And there's the temptation to potentially move in a direction that's not honoring to God to try to fill that void, right? That's when your belief is tested. Man, we need to pray for our singles in our church because we had a lot of singles for a while, and now a lot of singles that are pursuing relationships, but not every single person in our church is in a relationship. And that just makes being single that much harder when other people aren't single anymore. That's when belief is tested. Do we believe that God is good and he provides? Man, your belief is tested when when you've been praying and asking God for a child and then you seemingly have a child on the way and then the child is not there. And God, for whatever reason, takes that child. That's when your belief is tested. Your belief is tested when you're working a job and a coworker starts to work there with you and they do everything right that your spouse does wrong. right? And you begin to justify and say, life would be better with this person than with my spouse because they do everything right. Not to mention the fact that everything that your spouse does right, this new person does wrong. right? Like Our flesh doesn't <laughs> highlight that for us. Our flesh just wants to highlight the fact that this person does everything that your spouse doesn't do and life would be better with this person if you choose to be with this person versus staying with your family. That's when your belief is tested, right? When it's the hardest and when it's the most tempting to abandon what you know you're supposed to believe. Do we fear being in that state? Do we fear being in that state and our belief wavering enough that we do everything that we can now to prepare properly for that? That's what he says here in Hebrews 4. He says, fear being like the Israelites and having the pressure really push in on you. Fear being in a state where you don't have water. Fear being in a state where you're about to go into a place with giants. Fear being in that state and not believing God. Anticipate that those times are gonna come and do everything that you can now to prepare for it so that you will believe when you're faced with those situations. Number two, rest today by being faithful towards his word. Rest today by being faithful towards his word. For our kids, the Bible helps us believe. So not only are we supposed to believe the Bible, the great thing about the Bible is that it helps us believe it. The way that it works, the way that it's living and active, the way that it pierces and divides and assesses our intentions, it helps us believe in it. We can rest today by being faithful towards his word. Number one, the word benefits us only if we put our trust in it. Children of Israel heard it. But the message they heard, verse 2, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. All right, so he goes on and says, this is why Israel didn't enter in my rest, because they didn't believe. But, verse 6, the rest still remains for those who will believe. Those who received the good news previously failed to enter because of their disobedience. But today we have a responsibility, verse 7, to not hear his voice and then harden our hearts. Verse nine, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. All right. so the word benefits us, but we have to put our trust in it. Then it goes on to describe what the word of God is like. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the word only really benefits us if we put our trust in it, when we see those promises of God and we believe those promises. Number two, labor is required on our part to enjoy these benefits. There's there's responsibility on our part, one, to put ourselves under God's word, and then number two, to respond in faith that will lead to obedience. He says, verse 11, therefore let us strive to enter that rest. How do we strive to not enter that rest? Or how do we strive to enter that rest? Well, we've already seen in Hebrews several ways. One, uh, chapter two, verse one, we don't drift, right? Like we don't drift and stop putting ourselves under God's word or stop responding to it. We don't neglect it, chapter two, verse three. We consider Jesus, chapter 3, verse 1. We keep our eyes set on Jesus. We don't allow our hearts to become hardened, chapter 3, verse 8. We put ourselves in positions to be exhorted, chapter 3, verse 14, right? So we don't just trust that ourselves will keep on believing. We ask other people to help make sure that we keep believing. And how much we do that, how much we pay attention to not drifting and not hardening and seeking exhortation, I mean, that's all based on how much we fear falling into a state of unbelief. Think about if your calendar for church activities was shaped by how much you feared falling into unbelief. Think about that. Think about how much fellowship with God and and people that, that follow God, that was shaped by how much you fear being in a state of not believing those things. Because that's what he's saying here. He says, fear being like the Israelites and failing to believe and let that fear motivate you to not drift, to not harden, to not fail to seek exhortation from others. Strive. So instead of drifting, strive for these things. Strive to enter that rest. The Bible is called living and active here, meaning that it's effective and that God is continuing to speak through it today. I mean, he spoke through it thousands of years ago when he first wrote it, and he's continuing to speak to it today to our audience this morning. It's a living word. It's an active word. It's an effective word where God is speaking. It's also described as being sharp. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What's all that mean? Man, I mean, I think it just means it cuts to the deepest part of who we are. Right, like we can spend time trying to, to, to assess and describe like, what, what is all these different parts here? I, mean, I think the key point here is that it drives it all the way to the deepest parts of who we are and it helps cut off sin at the root in our hearts, that sin of unbelief. Because it's not just about uh, changing our outward character. right? Like the Bible's not just a list of rules that we're supposed to obey. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, man, if you're content with just looking different outwardly, you've missed the point because I'm concerned about you looking different, different inwardly. Right? So the the word of God convicts not just our outward actions, but our inward thoughts, our inward intentions. Right? Like it wants to fix us all the way to the core of who we are. So that we're not just doing things that that are motivated out of a desire to, to earn God's favor, that we're doing things out of a genuine love for others. We saw in Revelation, that's where some of the churches got off in their in their efforts. They were still doing some of the things, but they had left their first love. Right? Like their intentions had shifted in what they were doing. The Bible is sharp. It cuts all the way to the core of who we are and works to fix us there. No creature is hidden from its sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. It's it's invasive in its sharpness. It pierces and it discerns. It untangles the human heart. It unearths sin at its root. It helps protect us from unbelief. The implication for us is do you want to live by the sword? Or die by the sword. And this is where I want to take us back to numbers chapter 14, because this is the passage that we've been highlighting, this passage where Israel is about to go into the promised land, and they say, "You know what? We're not going to go. We don't believe God can take care of us there, and so we're going to stay over here. In fact, we might go all the way back to Egypt, where Pharaoh and his people will take care of us, because we don't believe that God will take care of us. And then God says, "Wrong choice, right? Like like bad decision. Like, you've, you've made a grave mistake. And that's where the children of Israel on the spot kind of want to, want to change their mind. Right? And they, they, want to, they want to do it differently because of, of the fact that now they feel like they're in trouble. And so it says, um, verse 39, when Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Right? Like, you guys aren't going to get into the promised land. You're going to have to walk around and die for 40 years. They rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Right? Like, at this point, they're like, in the die in the promised land, die in the wilderness. Well, we're still not sure we're going to live, but we'd rather die in the promised land than die in the wilderness, because God's saying we're going to die in the wilderness now. Right? So they show up the, the next morning. They're like, here we go. We're ready. Like, let us go. We, we've sinned. Verse 41, but Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? When that will not succeed, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down by your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Horma. Right, you got two different swords here. and I think that's even probably why the author of Hebrews describes God's word like a sword here because he has this passage on his mind. And he's thinking in terms of, man, unbelief led to Israel being disobedient, led, them, led to them not entering God's rest, and it led them to dying by the sword. So he kind of flips it back and says, man, if we will be intentional to strive to enter God's rest, strive to believe his word, man, his word will act like a sword that really brings healing. Right, like it'll cut and it'll unearth that sin and it'll fix us. The alternative is to die by the sword. We see that in the book of Revelation, right? Like we can either yield to the lamb or or be be judged by the lamb. That's the same picture here in Hebrews chapter four coming from Numbers chapter 14. All right, lastly, number three, rest today by being confident in needing the son. All right, so you got all this talk in Hebrews chapter four about, man, be fearful, of falling into unbelief and learn from the mistakes of the Israelites and be very diligent to strive to enter God's rest, believe those promises, anticipate that trials and temptations are going to come and it's going to be hard and it's going to be alluring to do something different than what God wants us to do. So anticipate those times, prepare for those times, be ready to believe in those times. And then he reminds us, and you're not going to be able to do it perfectly right? Like, lest you think that there'll never be times of unbelief, lest you think there will never be times of disobedience, he reminds us of the role that Jesus plays in the life of a believer now. After salvation, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For our kids, Jesus helps us believe. So the Bible helps us believe because the Bible works to fix us, but then Jesus also helps us to believe because he serves as that advocate for us, that merciful, gracious advocate for us. He helps those who have weaknesses. So the author of Hebrews is not expecting the audience, the hearer of his letter, to to be people without weakness, to be people who never fall into unbelief. Instead, he's saying, man, the great thing here is that Jesus is ready, willing, and able to help us when we fail to do this all the time. So number one, be confident that you will need the son. You specifically. (coughs) This offer of grace and mercy, I mean, that assumes that it will be uh, needed by people who are tempted with sin. So Jesus tempted just like we are without sin. We are tempted just like Jesus, but with sin, right? And so we are gonna fall prey to temptation at times. We are gonna fall prey to trials at times. We are not going to respond all the time like we should in those situations. And that's where Jesus is our sympathetic high priest who offers grace and mercy, right? So so all of us need to recognize, just like 1 John says, right? That, that, that we wanna live without sin, but if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar, right? But he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. So Jesus is set up here as a reminder that, man, in all of our striving to enter God's rest, there's gonna be times where we don't do it right and we do fall into unbelief and Jesus stands there to help us to extend grace and mercy to us. When we're tempted and we yield to that temptation. Be confident that you will need the Son, because that keeps us humble. Also keeps us from falling into despair, right? Keeps us from falling into despair when we do have these times where we fall to fall to unbelief. And all of our sin is 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 flowing from unbelief. Anytime we we fail to do what we're supposed to do, it's because of some type of status of unbelief. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. He understands that that it's hard because he went through it just like we do. He did it without sin. And he knows exactly the type of grace and mercy that we need when we fail to do it the way that he did it. Number two, be confident that the son is able and willing to help you. You specifically. He understands our temptations, therefore understands what grace and mercy is needed. He came to experience what he experienced so that he could help us. Like that's part of why he, you know, the way that God did it, that's why he did it that way. Yes, he needed perfection so that we could be cleansed. Yes, he needed a sacrificial sacrifice so that, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Right, like he needed those things, but he also set it up where Jesus would endure all the things that we endure so that he can function as the better high priest. So he came to experience what he experienced so that he could help us. He wants to help us. So the implication there for us then is when trials and temptations hit the hardest, do you find yourself clinging to the promises of God and Jesus or doubting them? When trials and temptations hit the hardest, do you find yourself clinging to the promises of God and Jesus or doubting them? There's going to be times where we have to preach to ourselves, right? Like wait until the next Sunday is not going to be sufficient enough. We need to preach God's promises to ourselves so that when trials, temptations are hard and tempting, that we say no to those things or we we weather those things, believing in the promises of God. Those that aren't truly believers, man, they're the ones that really doubt during this time and walk away from Jesus during this time, right? Like when things get hard, they say, let's go back to Egypt. When things get tempting, they say, the pot of stew is better than the birthright. Those that are believers, Hebrews 3 says, will make it to the end. They will endure to the end. When trials and temptations hit, they will cling to their confession in Christ. They'll hold fast to it. We're going to talk more about these last couple of verses, 14 through 16, this aspect of Jesus the great high priest, because it flows right into chapter 5. So Chapter 5 is kind of, really, I mean, they kind of go together. So we've touched on it a little bit this morning. We'll come back and hit those as an introduction to chapter 5 next week. So let me summarize the idea of what's going on here in chapter 4. All right, The goal is to enter into God's rest and to bring others with us. To enter the rest, we must believe God and what he says. To believe him, we must hear him by placing ourselves under the word. And we must remain diligent in our belief so that we don't enter into unbelief and disobedience. You could probably add a fifth thing there that Jesus helps us when we do fall into times of unbelief and disobedience. That's kind of the main points here in chapter four, I think. Enter into God's rest if you're a believer. Bring others with you. Exhort them to that. You Enter that rest by believing God in what he says. To do that, you really have to understand his word and hear his word so that you have something to believe in. So we have to place ourselves under the word to believe him. And that's one of the ways that we respond in fear of being like the Israelites is that we keep feeding ourselves these promises. We keep putting ourselves under the word more and more so that we have more to believe in. Like we're storing up promises for times of trial and temptation. And then we remain diligent in our beliefs so that we don't enter into unbelief and disobedience. We keep storing that up. All right, application-wise, what evidence is there in your life that a fear of unbelief is leading you to strive daily so you do not fall when trials and temptations come? What evidence is there in your life that a fear of unbelief is leading you to strive daily so you do not fall when trials and temptations come? And if somebody asked you, hey, what are you doing to protect yourself from from unbelief? What are the things that you would go to to say, here are the precautions that I'm taking. Here is how I am checking my equipment regularly before I go rock climbing. Before I go skydiving, I'm going through all the checks and balances to make sure that when I'm in those situations, everything works like it's supposed to. What are the things that you're doing now to ensure that when things get hard and things get tempting, that you don't yield to unbelief in those situations? I mean, it's too late. It's too late probably when the coworker gets hired and you haven't believed in the promises of God with your spouse. Right? like At that point, it's very tempting, very alluring, and that's when people end up walking away from their families. Like At that point, you know, seeking out guidance and help, you're, you're probably gonna yield to what your flesh is saying versus what the Spirit is saying and versus what your friends are saying. And there's certain things that are so tempting and certain trials that are so difficult. I and mean, you have to prepare yourself for those things as much as possible, realizing that sometimes you can't even fully prepare. Right, like I don't know that anybody can fully prepare for the idea of God taking a child from them. I mean, I mean, you get the family in Pike County who lost their kid at a football game on a Friday night a couple of weeks ago, right? And like like all of a sudden, like the next morning, like they don't have a son anymore. I have no idea what their spiritual state is, so I have no idea how they're even responding to this. But I know for me, like if I woke up tomorrow and, and AJ was no longer a part of our family, I don't know how I can prepare fully for something like that. But you better believe I've got to do everything that I can to prepare for that because certainly in my flesh, there will be so much doubting and anger towards God about something like that. I mean, I've got to do everything that I can, like Paul says, to be content in all of my circumstances, trusting in the promises of God when I'm brought low and when I'm brought high. What evidence is there in your life that a fear of unbelief is leading you to strive daily so you don't fall when trials and temptations come? Be in the word, make sure you're applying what you're hearing in the word and then gather help from others to hold you accountable, people that you trust in your life, whether that's in this church or outside this church. We all need people that exhort us regularly to keep believing in the promises of God. Our family worship questions for this week to read Hebrews chapter five as a family and to talk about the clear things and the questions that you have from this chapter as well. I'm gonna pray for us and then Tyson's gonna come and lead us in a closing song. God, we thank you so much that you have extended rest to us today. God, we're thankful that rest encompasses a lot of different things. One, that we can, we can rest today knowing that, that our behavior this week does not shape our salvation. That our salvation has been determined by the work of Jesus. We're thankful that we can rest in knowing that this week we can serve you out of love and not out of a desire to get approval from you. God, we're thankful that we can rest this week, and we can keep striving to rest this week, knowing that whatever circumstances we face, you're going to be good to us, and we can trust that promise, that you're going to work it for good in our life. Even if it's undesirable at the time, it will turn out for our good. God, I'm thankful that we can look forward to a day of rest that is to come in the future when trials and temptations are nowhere to be found. We don't have to worry about perseverance. We don't have to worry about enduring. We don't have to be exhorted to not fall away from the faith. That we'll be with you and we will see you as you are. We'll be made like you in glory. And that nothing will be able to detract us or steal our attention. God, we thank you that the rest can be enjoyed today. And then fully in the future, and God, I pray that that rest in the future would keep us motivated today to keep believing in You. We'd be faithful to strive for that belief every day. God, help us to to put ourselves under the Word regularly, to be believing in the promises now, so that when trials and temptations come, we are better prepared to respond to those things. God, we thank You for believers that You put into our life that help exhort us and help us help encourage us in the midst of those situations. Help us to always have a group of people in our life that we can fall back on when we know that our flesh is starting to win the war in us. That we can fall back on these people to exhort us to keep believing in your promise. God, I pray that if there's anybody in our church right now that's wavering in their belief in a certain area, that there's something taking place in their life where they're not trusting you like they should, and it's causing them to to act disobediently. God, I pray that you would convict them as only your word can that your word would act like a sword and it would drive to the depths of their heart and it would cut the sin off at the root. God, we're thankful that your word does that. God, we're thankful that Jesus is by you at your throne right now, extending grace and mercy to us when we fail. God, I pray that we would be diligent to confess our sins, believing that you're always faithful and um, reliable and and trustworthy to forgive us of our sins. God, I pray that you'd be with us as we separate today and, and, and tackle this week. God, that we'd come back next week believing more in you versus less. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.